0: This is the Meiji at 150 podcast, I'm Tristan Gruno. On this episode, I'm talking with Dr. Elisa Friedman, professor of Japanese literature and film in the Department of East Asian Languages and Literatures at the University of Oregon. Dr. Friedman's most recent publication is Introducing Japanese Popular Culture, co-edited with Toby Slade. Published by Rutledge in 2017. Dr. Friedman, thank you so much for talking with me today.
1: Thank you for asking me. I'm delighted to be here.
0: In your research, you focus on literature, film, and cultural studies of Japan, particularly in the city of Tokyo in the Taisho period. So could you talk about what's happening in Tokyo around the late Meiji and Taisho period, particularly from the perspective of cultural studies?
1: Sure. As you know, my research and my interest in Meiji, Taisho, early Showa began while I was a graduate student at University of Chicago. And I wrote my second book, Tokyo in Transit, which is really an exploration of train culture and how things from the early train culture, like the late Meiji period, Meiji 40s in particular, impact uh, train culture today. And how trains, even to expand on this, reflect what is fascinating and frustrating about Tokyo. So I, it's, it's sort of fun when you think about things that were around in like Meiji 40 or 1907, 1908, and, and how they resonate with what's going on in Tokyo space, Tokyo culture today.
0: One chapter of your book it focuses on the short story by Tayama Katai, ah. girl watcher, Shojo-byo in, in particular. And you, and you talk about how this is kind of evocative of both the promise and the peril of trains in the Meiji period.
1: That's really well said. Thank you for that. Yeah, Shoujo Bio or the Girl Watcher, the Girl Fetish, is a very fun story in several ways. I love the story to study and and also to teach because it captures the experience of um, 1907 in in certain ways from a, a particular vantage point too, like the intersection of the kaishain, the early worker in Japanese companies. In this case, a copy editor feeling dissatisfied with his job and seeking what he calls the paradise or the space of the commuter vehicle, where he could stare at affluent schoolgirls, another new identity at the time, who are commuting to school. And as I argue, as schoolgirls, these wealthy, affluent schoolgirls are being seen by people outside their immediate social circles. They're working their way more into literature, art, newspapers, and and other media. So the story sort of brings these worlds together. Um, It also is sort of a a literary exploration of Tayama Katai as an author, sort of exploring the parameters of what could be said about base male desires, if you will. So, yeah, it's a a lot of fun to look at how the the, the space of the train could facilitate this new form of people watching that could give rise to, to new forms of literature.
0: So what do we see when we look at what's changing in the city, what's changing in personal relationships from the perspective of the train car?
1: Well, I look at this a few ways in Tokyo in transit. And thank you for bringing up chapter one, um, where I look at sort of early acts of, of people watching on trains. And there were some fascinating articles in Meiji period newspapers of reading facial expressions of tired passengers on trains. And trains in the Meiji period were smaller uh, than trains today, obviously, the space of the train car. Like, I like to have students sort of turn around and face each other when I teach Meiji period trains in class. (laughs) I see just how close you would be to the other passengers. But this new space of throwing people from different social classes together that are not like a unified crowd. They're not like a group of protesters or co-workers that are all there for one common purpose. I mean, people on the train do have a purpose from getting from point A to point B, but what they do at point A and point B are very different. So there are autonomous individuals in the crowd. So the spaces of the train in the Meiji period is one of the first times of bringing strangers together in this enclosed box. There's wonderful articles reporting um, letters to the editor. Um, You know, Meiji period literature, as I'm sure other people have talked about in their podcasts, was often meant to be read out loud. And this was a problem on early train rides, and there were some signs in trains saying, don't read out loud, it disturbs other passengers. Or letters to editors of magazines about this. Or the problem of bad manners on trains. The early train manners posters that we have on like Tokyo Metro posters today, for example, started way back, not in the Meiji period, but in the Showa period, a Taisho period actually. Like, for example, the women-only car began in 1912, started by the Tokyo police to protect schoolgirls. I'm not sure if the schoolgirls suggested it themselves or it was sort of a a regimentation imposed upon them. I'm I'm not quite sure. And there were reports in, in newspapers also of prostitutes soliciting on trains. So the train really brings different kinds of People watching and pathologies and seductions altogether.
0: You mentioned the girls only car starting in 1912 and, and some of the bad manners on the trains. I know some of your more recent work has talked about other types of behaviors on the trains. And, and you've written about Densha Otoko, for example, and also the cell phone novels that people are now reading while they're on the trains. How is it? How is the train culture today different than the Meiji period?
1: That's a very good question. And I'm glad you brought up Den Toko and Keitai Shossetsu, um, two literary phenomenon, sort of collectively written internet novels and, and cell phones written for serialization on cell phones, both, both dating from around 2005. Five, this pivotal moment before iPhones make them obsolete, I believe. But yeah, trade behaviors. Um, for example, Denjo Toko focuses on a supposed real life experience of a self proclaimed otaku or avid fan of, of games, anime, manga, who um, saves a woman from being harassed on a train and then writes onto a website to ask uh, for advice on how to ask this woman out on a date. But I think the story is so notable too because people don't often interact on trains. So interacting with a stranger on a train can become a life-changing experience. Perhaps more in representation than in reality, this becomes a a theme of literature, even in the Meiji period, like Natsume Soseki's Sanchiro would be a famous example from the Meiji period. Especially the first chapter, which takes place on a long distance train, traversing Japan rather than the space of Tokyo, where the main character, Sanchiro, encounters the character types and and the main characters that he will see in the rest of the novel. And then throughout that particular novel, Sanchiro by Natsume Soseki, the main character experiences different kinds of dissatisfaction as represented through different kinds of trains in the story. Like I said, the long-winded answer to your question, of course there's differences, but there's certain kinds of human nature aspects, this kind of, the space of the train making possible how people interact, work and play in the city of Tokyo. Like I believe the salaryman and the, the female student as we know them in the 20th century would not have been possible without meiji trains. When it would be not be possible to quickly get from one place to another or to commute to work. One of the early terms for a salaryman or, or businessman would be getskyotori, someone who commutes or gets a salary, a stomejin, all these words that involve getting salaries or commuting.
0: And so if, during the Meiji period, perhaps there's a little bit more interaction. And maybe one of the things people are doing while they're not interacting is they're focusing on their cell phone novel.
1: Yeah, cell phone novels were an interesting phenomenon um, that sort of played themselves out, I think, between 2005 and 2007. Some of the biggest bestsellers in Japan were novels that were written, when you think about it, essentially with your thumbs. I like to call them thumb generation novels, um, borrowing the term from pachinko players but this kind of uh novels that you would write on your cell phone if you will that would be one mode of writing them and then upload them onto a specialized website which could be accessed from like docomo or different kinds of mobile technologies for being read in public spaces it's interesting though when way back uh shincho the publishing company began to offer novels available for serialization on early japanese cell phones early meaning like before 3g And uh, the first book that they made available were a series of novels that had been serialized on trains by famous authors in the early 2000s, like Yoshimoto Banana. So it's it's just a, a coincidence too of different, or maybe more than a coincidence, of different modes of serialization that involve the space of the commute. It's interesting what people do on trains today. I think Maybe it's just me, but I'm hearing more interactions among passengers in the recent years. I don't know if that's a relaxing of manners in general, I heard an experiment on the news this past summer in Tokyo that some train lines, it just happened by a mistake that the intercom had left on uh, classical music in the background. (laughs) I don't know if you heard this.
0: No, I didn't. It was such
1: a success among passengers. I forget which train line, one of the train lines that went to Saitama or or Outline. I I should have looked this up. Uh But the passengers really liked it. (laughs) I don't know if that's going to be something in the future.
0: But it's so quiet otherwise. I guess at least there's some background music
1: now. It's quiet, but you sometimes hear reminders not to push on the train or, or, or to, be, to uphold manners. Or, or I was on the train on March 11th this year, and I did hear an announcement on the Tozai line about reminding about the 311 triple disaster. Oh, wow. Oh, wow.
0: I guess another way to think about these cell phone novels is another type of story that you can hold in the palm of your hand. And, and of course, the first palm of the hand stories were written by somebody you've dealt a lot with, uh, Kawabata Yasunari. Uh, you translated Asakusa Kurenaidan. Uh, you talk about that book and then how he's viewing the space of, of Tokyo. And then is, is there an influence of the Meiji period? Is he pushing back against this? Or, or what is the space that Kawabata sees in the city?
1: That's a really good question, and thank you for asking about Asaksa Kurinaidan, or the Scarlet Gangs of Asaksa. The book, unfortunately, doesn't have any trains. Um, It's mostly (laughs) walking through the space of the city. It was a novel written by Kawabata, as you mentioned, one of the first people to to make uh, these sort of very short writings of Palm of the Hand stories, a popular genre, if you will, in the 1920s. but Asa- the Scarlet King of Asakusa, that's a good question about Meiji. It seems the book is influenced by 1920s, uh, especially the years after the earthquake and, and um, the new entertainments that came about before 1929, like the the dance reviews, the aquarium, the kind of spaces that were seductive interactions of mass culture in the city. And in so doing, I think Kawabata's impulse in that was more of Edo period playful literature and capturing sort of the chonin or the um, sort of the mass culture, the merchant culture of the cities, perhaps more so than the Meiji period. Although I could be wrong about this. Maybe I'm more influenced by the literary allusions that Kawabata writes into the novel of famous playful Edo period writers. And he does this very slyly. Uh, He references writers from his own period, from the 1929, but he doesn't often give their names. Like he'll just say, oh, that novel that I read and you have to go and trace, oh yeah, that's Tanizaki. Well, he does name drop many times throughout the novel, but the best of my memory, I don't know if he name drops people from the Meiji period because I think he's looking for a different kind of playful spirit of the streets that he's feeling this affinity for certain parts of Edo period mass culture or mass culture of this kind of modernity represented by Asakusa in the 1920s.
0: And I think that's the key part. Today, when you go to Tokyo and you know the tourist guidebooks will say, go to Asakusa because that's the most traditional part. That's yeah. the, the kind of tourist part where you can get pulled around in a rickshaw. You're going to see a ninja or two. But when you look at what's happening in Asakusa in the 1920s, at the time that is writing, that's kind of the center of urban modernity in a way. That's, that's where the movie theaters are. That's where the whole eroguro nonsense of the 1920s is taking place. And so you could say that without the westernization and modernization that is sparked by the Meiji Restoration, would we have that kind of a Soxa for Kawabata to inhabit?
1: sure i mean there's so much has happened in several decades and and there's so many different kinds of modernization as you explore well in your work top down grassroots all different not just the directionality of modernization but but you know like for example things coming into japan japanese adaptations of things and also many many things being created within japan and practices So that's what I love about Asakusa, it represents one of these kinds of Sakariba or nodes of entertainment districts that's different from Ginza or different from Shinjuku or the suburbs or or other places that are being discussed in in literature and culture of the times. Asakusa also, as as you know, grew up en route to the Yoshiwara, so it plays a large role in, in Edo period culture. Uh, the first movie theaters around the Meiji period. That's true. The, the movie theaters began in, in the Meiji period around 1904,
0: 1907. Yeah, and the, the 16 stories?
1: Oh, yeah, the 12 stories. The,
0: the 12 stories.
1: Pavilion. I mean, yeah. But pavilion.
0: But that's, that's actually built during the Meiji period. And that kind of becomes the big symbol of Asakusa by the time of Taisho before it's destroyed in the 1923 earthquake.
1: And it had Japan's first elevator that was actually closed by the police for safety reasons. (laughs) But it becomes a contrasting symbol to like the Sensoji Temple, for example, which is also sort of a a construction, if you will. It, It wasn't, necessarily I mean the meanings of of these so-called sacred spaces are also constantly evolving and and are always so sacred have a lot of profane and other elements associated with them too nakamise off of it
0: well to go back to trains and the people riding trains Your recent work has also talked about passengers on trains and passengers on different types of vehicles, and that is the Modern Girls on the Go. Can you tell us about that?
1: Thanks for mentioning Modern Girls on the Go. That was a fun project. Um, that was a book that I edited with Cristiano and Laura Miller. And that project came about from an AAS panel that Chris Yano and I started brainstorming. And then Laura was our discussant and we kept adding to it. This is where we look at the signifier, if you will, the heuristic signifier, because we take it out of its historical context of modern girl, Moga or Modangaru, and look at how this idea of women representing ideas of modernity, especially through their motion physical motion. So we sort of borrow tongue-in-cheek, if you will, but, but yet taking its, its cultural associations of the modern girl as a figure representing a certain kind of modernity in, in the early Showa period, and look at, um, the book includes about oh, 10 chapters of different kinds of girls who, or women, who work in jobs that have to do with motion. And in turn, all of these jobs represent different kinds of Japanese modernity. Like Elise Tipton's wonderful study of um, department store workers, or Cristiano's wonderful piece about flight attendants, Lara's on elevator girls, Elise Edwards on uh, more contemporary soccer players, Sabine's on, uh, Sabine Freuschuk on military women. I can, the list goes on and on. Sally Hastings on female educators, Jan Bardsley on beauty queens. I, I could keep going through the table of contents. I love all the essays. My friends in Japan are always baffled about what I study, Um, and they just sort of laugh at me. In fact, I came upon Densha Toko thanks to friends' recommendations who were following the Channel 2 discussion in in 2005. But um, I began to study Hato Bus, or the bus tour guides of Japanese tour buses. Now there's uh, actually more men that are working at, as t- guides on Japanese tour buses. But for several years, it would be considered an anomaly not to have a tour guide on a bus. Like it would just be weird. And you need to, uh, when you rent the, the charter bus to take a tour, or, and this is a tour bus are a big part of Japanese school trips and company trips. You would just assume there's going to be a tour guide that would narrate what you're seeing. And this chapter in Modern Girls on the Go on bus tour guides, I do look at um, bus tour guides starting around uh, the the Taisho period, especially the first ones were in in Beppu, not in Tokyo. You can imagine with the hot spring resorts. But that chapter on Hato bus and female bus tour guides and how they create the experience of the city for passengers. And I I explore that through film, especially films by Narusei came from a chapter in Tokyo in transit on uh, women who work for buses within Tokyo. That was the final chapter of the book. And, look, and they date a little bit earlier, a very dangerous job of riding on the outside of a bus through unpaved streets to, to take tickets from passengers. For example, the chapter included in Tokyo in transit on, on bus guides, on that chapter, I look at how women were employed as workers on city buses. And how they became sort of an objectified figure, too, of allure. And I look at stories, two stories, for example, one by Yves Say, about a bus guide a more, uh, from a, a, a more um, perspective of a woman's honesty and, and ideas of corruption. And then a different story by Kawabata called The Corpse Introducer, which I translated and added to the back of uh, Tokyo in Transit, which is about um, the fantasy of the bus guide in the sexual imagination, if you will, in the time period. And looking at a, a male student and what he does with the bodies of two female bus guides. So I look at the bus, scout as being, one, a poor laborer, in a sense, like, like many jobs that women are doing in the city, like elevator girls, or, or working at jobs that were once mainly for men, but women were hired either because they were able to be paid less than men, or men were taking other jobs, or, or some bus companies found that you know, supposedly women were nicer. I, I mean, again, there's different kinds of perceptions. And how, one, the reality of these bus guides, and two, how they were dealt with in representations of the times. Because those are two themes of my work in general. As you can tell, I'm a historian wannabe, and I love history. And I I like to look at the lived experience. And then um, I also like to look at how literature, film, popular culture sort of captures the emotional experience of the lived history in various ways.
0: You had once recommended to me that I... If I really wanted to learn the city of Tokyo, I had to ride one of the Hato buses because the, the view of the city is so different. So what is it? Sell us on a Hato bus tour of Tokyo.
1: My dream of being a Hato tour bus guide. I can't <laughs> be an elevator girl. Um, Hato buses were very popular. I think their heyday was probably in the 50s and 60s. And, and for example, in, in the Ozu film Tokyo Story, there's a pivotal scene in which the Parents who had come to the city of Tokyo to visit their their uh, son and, and the only one who treats them well is the daughter-in-law. The daughter-in-law rides a tour bus, presumably a hato bus with the parents, and it's shown through their vantage point. I'm bringing up that film scene to sort of impart the kind of position that bus guides played for many people in Tokyo, not just for visitors from outside the city, but a different way of, of literally taking a ride through the changes of the city. And and Hato buses go on different routes. You could take different kinds of bus tours, and there have been different ones over the ages, especially around the 1964 Olympics. Now there's bus tours catering to all different kinds of, of populations. But it would be a way of of traversing the streets and seeing things differently because they're explained to you by a guide who coordinates her talk to the rhythm of the bus itself, which is fascinating. Because, I mean, the timing is key. You, you can't explain the building that you've passed like five miles before. You have to hit it as you're passing. And the guides also play games. They, they do they sing songs. They for the for the stretches of street that don't have as many landmarks, for example. To keep the passengers entertained. And this this is also, I mean, this was a phenomenon throughout the 20th century that has been in different kinds of, of childhood memories of the city itself. Even a quick Google search from the, the late 20th century, if you find people's photo pages of their company trip, there'll be a Hato bus tour. I don't know if in two thousand eighteen the Hato buses still have the same cachet as they used to. I I hope it's not a dying art, but there seem to be now other ways of experiencing the city, especially with the twenty twenty Olympics coming up.
0: understand your most recent work is talking about a different kind of, shall we say, modern girl on the go, and that's Japanese women who have come to the United States in the immediate post-war period. Can you tell us about that?
1: Yeah, thank you so much for asking. It's my loveliest project, and hopefully it's a small way of giving back to my professors. I became interested in uh, Japanese women who came to the U.S. for graduate school between 1949 and and 1966. Again, most of these born, women born uh, after the Meiji period. This was thanks to a University of Oregon colleague, um, Professor Yoko McLean, who was Natsume Solseki's granddaughter, and she came to the University of Oregon in 1952 on a Gariowa Fellowship. Garioa was a program run through the Department of the Army, the U.S. Army, to use war reparations to pay for the study abroad of Japanese students to the U.S. And the goal was not for these students to earn a graduate degree. I mean, as we all know, that's impossible in one year. But for them to experience American-style democracy and to bring back a positive view of the U.S. to Japan and also to be new leaders in immediate post-war Japan. And um, it was also inspired by one of my professors, Kyoko Selden, who was a professor at Cornell University. And Kyoko Selden had come to the US in 1960 under the Fulbright program. Fulbright becomes instituted in Japan in 1952, uh, after the the occupation ends, and the Gariowa program ends with the occupation. But it's it's interesting on, on many levels that these women uh, came to the U.S. for, for graduate school. And they're different from the women who came in the Meiji period for study, like the Iwakura mission in the Meiji period. They're still experiencing American universities, gaining a lot of self-confidence and new experiences but their financial situation, for example, is different. In the post-war period, as you know, these women couldn't take money out of Japan. And if they could, they couldn't get dollars. Some of them snuck money out by sewing them into their kimono or finding ways to, to bring uh, more financial support than the Garioa program provided. And I didn't realize this until I started the project that the, the largest number of study abroad students ever in Japan were between 1951 and 1952. I didn't expect that. And they're they're actually some of the very first Japanese people to, to leave Japan. And you think like during the Meiji period, people couldn't travel obviously that easily. There were missions that were sent and many restrictions until the liberalization of travel until 1964.
0: So then what happens to these women after they go back to Japan?
1: An excellent question. I'm finding that there's not just one life course for the women that I'm talking to. And I just spent the past year spending these lovely afternoons talking with women in their 90s who are all the more lovely because they don't realize how remarkable they really are. Um, some of them did become famous scholars, um, anthropologists, translators, poets. But many of them went back to Japan and either worked part-time or, or worked until they, became, they got married. Many of them women have been reluctant to talk to me because they say, oh, I'm just a housewife. But that also speaks to, one, their own personal ideas and and also very much the times themselves. So they did various things. I talked with one woman, for example, who became the head of part of the Japanese business mission that dealt with the United States around the time of the 1964 Olympics. And she would sit in an office in Akasaka and people would come. She was representing the state of Ohio. And people would ask to speak to her boss and she'd say, Uh, I am the boss, or you have to contact the governor of Ohio. But she could only do that job really until her 30s um, because of different glass ceilings that women faced. So women did a lot of things. I found that some women went back and they started some of Japan's first eikaiwa or English conversation programs for adults because there was a fascination for learning to speak English, but there weren't that many opportunities for adult education especially for housewives. So some of them started sort of in English circles, if you will, for um, housewives. Some became professors, many became professors in Japanese universities. Some became peace activists, especially at this time, anti-nuclear activists, also very active in women's liberation, some of them. It's fascinating, those who went back to Japan, were hired for their English abilities, and uh, many of them did not hold full-time jobs because it would just be very difficult for women. But having said that, many of them did become uh, chancellors of universities like Suda University or or Josai University, Noriko Mizuta, for example. So these women, when they went back to Japan, helped craft fields that had to do with cultural cross-pollination between the U.S. and Japan. Some of the earliest cohorts wrote a lot of articles for newspapers. I'm talking earliest cohorts, meaning 1949 through 52. And these women were chosen. They, they were chosen for their English ability. And they were also chosen for their internationalization. So many of them had been born in Korea and in Manchuria, interesting enough, and, and had come back to Japan, repatriated in various ways. But they wrote about their experiences and gave lots of lectures and of course, I mean, this changes in the 1960s when the Japanese economy begins to catch up with the American economy and the two cult- countries are not really that different as they were right after the war per se, culturally. I mean, there's still a lot of differences, but, the, but uh, for example, the, the American, America, when these students are coming in the 1940s and 50s, that's sort of America's heyday, if you will. But I think views of America begin to change with the Vietnam War era. and and study abroad. Those who stayed in the United States were often asked to teach about Japan. And even if their major had been English, which most of them were, they they didn't come to the U.S. to study Japan. And many of them were asked, like, for example, Takiko Dento was a a, a student sent to University of Iowa to study poetry in, in English. And she became the University of Iowa's first Japanese literature professor because she was asked to teach a course as part of their curriculum on world literature about Japan. But she found in the early 60s, there were very few translations of Japanese literature to teach, maybe just Kawabata's Snow Country, a couple works by Mishima, a couple works by Ole Konzaburo. So she found that she had to translate a lot of her own materials. And, and to Uh, Takiko Lenta wasn't alone in this effort. A lot of these women became translators because they had to teach this stuff. So they really sort of crafted the field. Um, Yoko McLean became the University of Oregon's first full-time Japanese language instructor, but her major was French. And the irony was that many of these women left Japan because they felt that they didn't quite belong in Japan and they didn't really know that much about Japan and had to sort of teach themselves.
0: The Meiji at 150 podcast is hosted by Tristan Gruno at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. This podcast would not be possible without the cooperation of the UBC Centre for Japanese Research and the technical assistance of the UBC Faculty of Arts ISIT. Find out more about the Meiji at 150 project, including the Meiji at 150 lecture series, digital teaching resource, and workshop series by visiting our website, at 150artsubcca
1: Thank you for listening.